It'd be great if you do have a Bible in front of you or an app open on your phone and are able to kind of search on your app. We're going to be in Matthew 2, but looking at some other passages as well. Let me ask as we start, why is Jesus like Marmite? Uh, Marmite, if you don't know, it's the English version of Vegemite, but older and better. Um, in England, everyone knows Marmite. You either love it or hate it. You know, even the product advertising uh, has this theme. You either love it or you hate it. And that's what you find with Jesus. People either love him or they hate him. And that's what Matthew presents to us right up front in his gospel here in chapter 2. Having introduced Jesus in chapter 1, his ancestry and his birth, now in chapter 2, Matthew shows how even as a child, Jesus divides people. In this passage, we see two extreme responses. The Magi worship him. Herod tries to kill him. Why is that? Why is it that Jesus provokes such extreme reactions? Well, we learn something in the passage as Matthew reveals more of Jesus' identity as God's worldwide ruler. And the way that Matthew does that is by going to the Old Testament. So we've got some work to do this morning. Uh, We're covering what was going to be two sermons in one. Uh, I don't want to take lots of time. I know it's a warm morning, so um, uh, just to warn you, um, and there's going to be quite a lot of explanation from me. We will apply it, but I want you to see where that application comes from. So let me pray for us, for God's help, and then we'll dive in. Our Father, we thank you for the immense privilege that we can hold in our hands your living word. We thank you for the presence of your spirit with us, our teacher, our counselor. And on this warm morning, we pray that he would engage our minds and our hearts and lead us to respond to Jesus in joyful obedience and wholehearted worship. Amen. Uh, Let me give you some handles on the passage. Um, In the section from 118 to the end of chapter 2, There are five times, now you've got an outline for the talk on the back of your sheets, which might be helpful. Five times Matthew uh, uses the same formula, roughly the same phrase, to show that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament scripture. So you see it if you look back to chapter 1, verse 22. All All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you've got a footnote in your Bible, you see that's a quotation from Isaiah, chapter 7. The second one comes in chapter 2, verse 5. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, are asked where the Messiah is going to be born, and they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. Can you see? Very similar phrase. This is what the prophet has written, and they quote from Micah 5. The third one is in verse 15 of chapter 2. Joseph, Mary, and Joseph, uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus escape to Egypt. They stay there until the death of Herod. Then verse 15, so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Quotation from Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we'll just pause here for a moment. That is an interesting link for Matthew to make. Because that verse in Hosea is talking about God calling his people Israel out of Egypt in the events of the Exodus. Israel as a nation was sometimes referred to as God's son. 
So out of Egypt I called my son. But Matthew is saying that this is fulfilled in Jesus being brought back from exile in Egypt. The point Matthew seems to be making here is that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the fulfillment of all the expectations of God's people. Where Israel as a nation failed, Jesus will be faithful. He's the embodiment of the nation. Where Israel disobeyed, where all of us disobey, Jesus will be obedient on our behalf as our representative. But there's even more going on here. Can you see the parallels between Matthew 2 and the events of the Exodus? Because Herod is a lot like Pharaoh, isn't he? Pharaoh who ordered the killing of all the Israelite boys and Moses, God's chosen redeemer, is rescued. And here, Herod orders the killing of the boys in Bethlehem and Jesus, the redeemer, is rescued. Matthew seems to be saying that in Jesus, there's a new exodus. There's a true exodus. There's a, a full and final act of rescue and deliverance. Okay, that's the third of five. Number four is in verse 17. After the slaughter of the innocents, verse 17, Matthew says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. And the fifth and final one comes in verse 23. After the family return from Egypt to Israel, they don't go back to Bethlehem. Verse 22, having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now look down for the footnotes and you'll find there isn't one because... There isn't any direct quotation from the Old Testament. No Old Testament prophet said the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. You might think, uh-oh, is Matthew just making stuff up? Well, no, let me try and explain this one. I grew up in a place called Peckham in London. Now, Peckham was a place where some taxi drivers refused to go because it had such a bad reputation. High crime, lots of gangs and violence, bad reputation. Nazareth is a bit like Peckham. Now, I don't know about the crime rates, but bad reputation. Do you remember at the beginning of John's Gospel where Philip goes to Nathanael and says, we found the Messiah and he's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? See, to be called a Nazarene was, to be from Nazareth was to be a nobody from nowhere. To be called a Nazarene was an insult. And so no prophet literally said the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. But notice here, Matthew isn't talking about a single prophet. He says what was said through the prophets, plural. And collectively, the prophets do make clear that when the Messiah comes, he will be a person despised and rejected, an object of scorn. He will be called a Nazarene. So, five times Matthew tells us that what God has said through the prophets has been fulfilled in Jesus. This is one of the big themes in Matthew's gospel. Fulfillment. Fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. He's the true son of Abraham. He's the true son of David, the Messiah. He's the true Israel, the obedient son of God. And in the events of his birth and his life, his death and resurrection... God is fulfilling what was spoken through the Old Testament prophets. It's because of this fulfillment theme that Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. He is concerned to show, more than the others, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. 
that he doesn't appear out of the blue, that he's the one God's people have been waiting for for centuries, that he's the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, we might think, okay, Ben, if that's the case, why bother with Matthew? You know, are we better off leaving Matthew to the Jews who are going to understand and get excited about all that Old Testament background, and we're better off studying Luke or Mark? But as we'll see in future weeks, in fact, as we've already seen, and as we'll see in our passage today, Matthew's concern to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah does not mean that he's only concerned for the people of Israel. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one who will bring God's blessing to the whole world. Jesus is the Messiah, the savior of all people. You know, in chapter 1, where the angel said to Joseph, give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And then the first of his people that we are introduced to are Magi from the east. Gentiles come to worship Jesus. Matthew's gospel is heading to its climax in chapter 28, where Jesus will declare, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew wants us to see that the king of the Jews is the king of the world, that the Jewish Messiah is the savior of all people. I've never studied Matthew in depth. I haven't even heard it preached that much. You know, some of the um, well-known passages, Sermon on the Mount, some of the parables, uh, but not all the way through. I, I am really looking forward to getting into Matthew's gospel. As I said, we're only covering chapters 2 to 5 uh, this term. Um, so it's going to take us a while if we get through the whole book. But I'm planning to come back next year, maybe do the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, tackle the section after that, chapters 8 to 10, then we're a third of the way through. Um, anyway, we need to get into chapter 2. It is warm. Can we do another 15 minutes? Put your hand up in 15 minutes and I will stop speaking. Not yet. <laughs> okay, what is going on in this passage? Two main points. The revelation of God's worldwide ruler and the response to God's worldwide ruler. Firstly, the revelation of God's worldwide ruler. His international, eternal, humble shepherd king. There's even more Old Testament background for this passage that isn't directly referenced, but is important to be aware of. We read Psalm 72 together. It'd be great to turn back to that if you can. Page 907 in the Red Bibles. We're just going to uh, skim our way through it. Page 907, Psalm 72. And I've got some points for you on your sheets. Uh, Psalm 72 is like the Israelite national anthem, but there's, it's not nationalistic. It's global in its focus. So verses 1 to 4 are about the integrity of this ruler. You know, it seems today uh, it's impossible to find a ruler who has integrity, who isn't surrounded by scandal or, you know, deceitful or corrupt in some way. But here, this ruler is just and fair. He's on the side of the weak and the oppressed. He's against the oppressor. So verse 1, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. And verse 4, may he defend the afflicted among the people 
and save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Uh, verses 5 to 7 is about the longevity of this ruler. You know, last year we celebrated the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years. Wow, that's a long reign. But this king will have an eternal rule. Look at verse 5. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. Verses 8 to 11 is about the breadth of this king's rule. He will be an international king, the king of kings. His reign will extend to the four corners of the earth. So look at verse 8. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. So reminiscent of Matthew 2, isn't it? Verses 12 to 14 is about the shepherding care of this king. Though he is the king of kings, he is concerned for the little guy, for the weak and the needy. If any needy person cries out to this king, he will deliver them. Verse 12. The afflicted who have no one to help, this king will help. Verse 13, he will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. And verses 15 to 17 is about the blessing of this king's rule. It picks up the promise to Abraham that he and his offspring would be a blessing to the whole world. See the second half of verse 17? Then all nations will be blessed through him, this king, and they will call him blessed. And the psalm ends in praise. Flip over in your Bibles to Isaiah 60, page 1157 in the church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 60. Just take a brief look at this. Verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Look at verse 3, nations will come to your lights, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Look down to verse 6, over the page. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And then turn on to Micah chapter 5, page 1450 in the Church Bibles, Micah chapter 5. This is uh, what is quoted yeah, by Matthew, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's what Matthew quotes, but look down to verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now, part of the role of the king was to be a representative of the people. In a sense, the king embodied the nation. And that is what Matthew's pointing us to by showing that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true king because he's the fulfillment of what the nation of Israel was meant to be. 
So in summary of all of that, that you can see the whole Old Testament is pointing to God's plan to send his chosen ruler, whose rule will extend to the ends of the earth and endure as long as the sun. A ruler for the whole world, for all nations. A ruler to whom the treasures of the nations will be brought. A ruler before whom the kings of the world will bow down. A ruler who will be a shepherd to his subjects who will rule with justice and righteousness and mercy, a ruler for the weak and the needy. And so although it's striking that these magi bow their heads before a child, it's not out of character. For we see in Matthew 2, this shepherd king is so concerned for the little guy that he becomes a little guy, becomes weak and needy. Born in poverty. He grew up in obscurity. Nazareth, the back of beyond. Despised and rejected. Even in infancy, hated and hunted. Exiled from his homeland, a refugee. How low was our Redeemer brought? The Lord the worlds obeyed. Would stumble as he learned to walk upon the ground he'd made. The one that angels bowed before would kneel to wash our feet and be at home among the poor, though he owned everything. How low was our Redeemer brought to raise us from our shame. And now the highest praise of all belongs to Jesus' name. The healer, wounded on a tree to bear our grief and sin. The king gave up his crown so we could ever reign with him. We see in Matthew 2 the the majesty of Jesus, that the king is here. The long-promised, long-awaited king is here. The eternal, worldwide shepherd king has come. The first of the international visitors have arrived, bringing tribute, paying homage to God's king. We see the majesty of Jesus. We also see the meekness of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. Because they're bringing tribute and they're paying homage to a boy, to a child. And yet the humility of this king does not detract from his majesty. It magnifies it. So that's the revelation of God's worldwide ruler. Secondly and briefly, the response. The response to God's worldwide ruler. Look at the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They know what the Bible says about the Messiah. They're very familiar with the prophecies. But when they hear that the Messiah might have actually come, they can't even be bothered to make the nine-kilometer journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Their, Their apathy is shocking, isn't it? Look at Herod. When he heard about a new king being born, he was greatly disturbed. And when the Magi failed to return, he was furious. No apathy here. The threat to his own rule leads him to murderous hatreds. Now Herod is a warning to us. The arrival of Jesus is a threat to our self-rule because his rule extends to the ends of the earth, even to Adelaide. Jesus' identity as king means he has the right to tell me and you how to live. He commands our obedience. His rule extends to the ends of the earth and to every aspect of our lives. 
All that we are, all that we have is for him. We are to love and worship him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Just look at the Magi. We don't know exactly who they are. Priestly astrologers from the east. The word can mean magicians. And whenever this word is found in the Bible, it's used negatively. Think of the magicians in Egypt who tried to copy the signs performed by Moses. Or the magicians in Babylon where Daniel and his friends are taken into exile. Gentile magicians, astrologers, yet here they are celebrating the arrival of the king of the Jews, bowing before him in submission and worship, getting down on their faces before this child because they acknowledge that he is their king and bringing to him their costliest treasures. But did you notice also that they do this with joy? This isn't reluctant, dutiful worship. This isn't begrudging submission and service. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Literally, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Maybe they understand something of the goodness of this king and the blessing of his rule. What do you make of their response? Joy, worship, laying their treasures down. Does it seem a bit extreme? Or do you see that if this child is who Matthew is showing him to be, then it's the only response that makes sense? Do you worship Jesus? Lots of people say they respect Jesus, they admire his teaching. We might say we trust Jesus, we follow Jesus. Do we worship Jesus? Have you heard it said, the wise men worshipped Jesus and wise men and women today will do the same. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for revealing to us the majesty and the meekness of King Jesus. Please help us to respond in the only way that makes sense. Please uh, renew in us a deep and abundant joy in Jesus. Please stir our hearts to wholehearted, all of life worship. Please free us from clinging to our treasures, our gifts, our life. May we gladly bring all that we are and all that we have in loving submission and service of our King. In his name we pray. Amen.